Well, this morning we're continuing in a little series, uh, Make Your Mark, and you have an outline there in front of you. You also have some money in there, and um, you get the money out of the bulletin. That's a good deal. Um, that's a track, actually, and uh, this is a way of letting you know that um, sometime in the future, we have yet to pin down an exact time, but um, Dave Bullen is going to be teaching a uh, Way of the Master Evangelism class. And it utilizes a lot of these tracks that they have and how to share your faith in a non-threatening way with people and to really uh, be more comfortable with doing that. And I think that that's such an important thing um, to get a hold of, and, and he's offered to do that, and so we've got to work out all the specifics. But uh, just be uh, thinking and praying about that if you want to partake and be part of that class uh, that's coming up, that uh, you would be uh, definitely blessed as a result of that. Well, this morning, I want to give you kind of a, a, a quick snapshot, you might say, of the model church, of a model church. I'm not saying our church is a model. I'm saying a church in the scriptures is a model. And so um, if you can hit that auto PC button there and move that thing over, that'd be great. That's just my perfectionistic stuff that drives me nuts. Anyway, um, so this morning, uh, when we look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, I want to look at this together. And this is stuff that we've kind of been over before. And this, you're not going to find any new truth here this morning. Uh, if you do, we're in trouble uh, ever because God has already given us his truth. We don't want to create our own. But... Um, as we look at Acts chapter 2, we want to focus in on verses 42 to 47. Now, I don't know if you've all been Christians for very long or not, but if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm sure that you have been offended. I'm sure that you have been hurt. I'm sure that you have been disappointed uh, by a church along the way in your first faith journey. That's just the reality of the Christian faith. Um, and even though we've had maybe our bad experiences with churches or people in the church or whatever it might be, um, when you stop and think about it, church doesn't have to be like that. It really doesn't. That's not how God intended it to be. Um, and, you know, when you, when you read uh, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where, you know, you, you think that, wow, the church can really be godly. It can be an exciting place where the Lord's presence is sensed, where he is at work, and, you know, Christ promised that he would build his church. Amen? And so even against opposition, it said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so early on when I became a Christian, I focused on that verse and I thought, wow, if Christ is building his church, you know, somehow I want to be part of that. I want to be used by the Lord to be part of that process. And so we want to look at this morning of a, just a snapshot of this model church because it gives us some principles that hopefully we can apply even in our own lives today as we live out our Christian faith here in this church. But as you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, I just want to read this for us and then we'll kind of draw a couple points out. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. 
And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. And praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, when you read that, I don't know about you, but I get kind of excited. I mean, can you imagine? In Acts chapter 2 here, verses 42 to 47, here are some key characteristics of this ideal church that God had planted, that God had created. You know, and there's, there's a lot of different ways you can look at in the church. I mean, you can look at it in a doctrinal and a theological way, and you can do that over in Ephesians. Paul addresses that. He covers a lot of doctrine. But here in Acts, it's more of a um, practical look at the church. It's not so much doctrinal. It's more practical. And so when we see this church being born, and, you know, here basically, you know, the memory of Jesus was so vivid. I mean, he was just there. The gifts of the Spirit were so fresh to these folks. And there was this vitality that was just beautiful and glorious. And God was working in a specific way through these folks. Now you think about it. Jesus had arrived. He had died. He had resurrected. He rose from the dead. And now he has gone. He ascended into heaven. But he left them with the Holy Spirit to finish this work. He formed something called his body, the church. He called out those of his own choosing, bringing them together to form what we call the church. He baptized them through the Spirit into the body. He filled them with the Spirit. And they began in this text here, it says that they began to speak the works of God in incredible languages. Languages that were known languages, but the people that were speaking them necessarily didn't know them. So it was miraculous. And the crowd was gathered together. And the reason that all happened was to set up this sermon by Peter. And Peter stood in the midst of all this wonder. And people were going, wow, what's going on over there? And he explained what miracle was going on and then proceeded to announce to the Jewish population of Jerusalem that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they, by the way, crucified, was both Lord and Messiah. Now, this is just probably 50-some days after Jesus' execution. And, you know, it's, it's very near to that. And in verse 41, it says, They received gladly his word and were baptized. And in the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This is the first church. You had 120 disciples, and then you add 3,000 to that. This was the church that was born by God on the first day here, They had 3,120 souls. Now, you say, well, what does that matter? Well, it doesn't really matter how many. We're not into numbers. But there is some indication here that obviously they counted them. They had an idea who was with them. 
They evidently knew who was part of the church by a profession of faith, by baptism. And and this was kind of the precedent that kind of set up what we call today church membership. You know, you're not going to find a chapter and a verse that says, oh, thou shalt become a member of a church officially. That's not there. But you can definitely read into this. You can definitely see the importance of it. If you have any organization, you want to know who's with you and who's not. You want to know who is to minister to and who's not. And so that was what they did. They counted these folks, and it really was a way for them to know, okay, who, who, who are we responsible for? And so they were able to keep track of those who were committed to Christ and those who they were responsible to minister to. And so the first fruits of this church that was gathered here on the day of Pentecost, which was the, the feast celebrating the first fruits, I mean, this was an incredible thing that happened. And so you see this little church, and you see its beginning, and as you go through the book of Acts, you see how it grows. Now remember, there was no church before this. There was no church in the Old Testament. And so we want to stop and we want to say, well, what did this first church look like? And maybe say, how can we become more like this first church? Um, and I think that it's, it's very important when we look at these verses that we see certain things. You see here this little group of humble disciples who basically, as we talked about last week, they counted the cost. They willingly identified with Christ by baptism with Christ. They were ostracized probably from their relatives or families, the society in which they lived. They basically looked to Christ and said, you know what? He is Jesus of Nazareth and he is our Messiah. He is our Lord. And the church has been born of which Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so here we go. We, we see this happening and it's kind of an exciting event. I mean, this is the first day. It's always exciting when companies, businesses, restaurants open up. You know, they have an opening day, a big celebration, they have banners and all this, and people come and check it out. I mean, can you imagine what it was like back then? And he called to himself these 3,000 souls. And it says in verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those who were being saved. I mean, isn't that incredible? Day by day, people were getting saved. Jesus Christ was at work in his church. Now, I want you to, as you look at this outline, you see basically three things here. First thing being devotion to the Lord. Second thing being a devotion to his people. And then also a devotion to the work of the Lord in the world. As Sam talked about missions this morning. But I want you to understand that this is kind of an um, outline that builds upon itself. You know, we need to understand today that our immediate task in the church, this may shock some of you, our immediate task in the church is not evangelism. It's not evangelism. That doesn't come till the end here. See, in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that there were apostles, that there were prophets, that there were those who were teaching shepherds, that there were evangelists, and they were given 
to the church for what reason? For the perfecting, for the equipping of the saints. When does evangelism happen? Well, that's a byproduct of the equipping. That's not the primary role of the church. Now, should we be involved in sharing our faith? Most definitely. But evangelism was the last thing on the list here in verse 47. And the reason was is because, you know what? If you go out to evangelize and you, ain't, you don't have anything inside to evangelize with, you're not going to be a very good evangelist. You can't go out and share your faith if you don't know what your faith is about. It's so important. And it's so basic. And so we come here on Sunday mornings for the express purpose of being equipped so that when we walk out these doors in the back, these four walls into a lost and dying world, that we have something to give them. We have a message that we can defend. We can give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And part of that defense will be covered in the class that that Dave is going to be teaching coming up on evangelism. But see, you have to have something to give first. Before the church is effective in evangelism, before the church is effective in winning others to Christ, it must be the model church. It must be the right kind of church. It must have, first of all, we see here, the proper devotion to the Lord. We must have the proper devotion to the Lord. Because a healthy church is marked by continual devotion to the Lord, to his people, and to his work in the world. Um, You know, when they first started this church, I just want to read this because I think it's, it's kind of important to us who maybe have been here a while and forget. But this is what this church is about. It says... We, the members of Grace Bible Church, having placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation and believing in the teachings and principles of the Holy Scriptures, do adopt the following as our standard for faith and practice. First of all, the purpose of this church shall be to win the lost to Christ and to edify the believer. I looked at that and laughed. I thought, well, they got it backwards, but that's okay. I'll take it that way. Secondly, we seek to attain this through the public worship of God, the preaching of the word of God, the administration of the ordinance of believers' baptism by immersion to those requesting it, and the administration of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper communion, prayer, separation unto God for victorious Christian living and from the world, apostasy and entangling alliances with unbelievers, submission unto the loving oversight and discipline of the elders of this church, personal evangelism, missionary endeavor, and Christian education. If you want to know what this church is about, that's what it's about. And here's what you do when you enter into membership here at this church. You're saying, okay, here's what what I'm signing up for. Having been led, as we believe, by the Holy Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we covenant together, God helping us, that as strangers and pilgrims, we will abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, that we will, by the Spirit's enablement, put away all forms of bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God through Christ has forgiven us. That as we have opportunity, we will do good to all men, especially those who are the household of faith, and that we will remember them 
which have rule over us, who speak unto us the word of God, and that we will give as God has prospered us, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. If that sounds familiar to you, you know what that is? That's all scripture. It's pulled right out of the New Testament. So the first thing we see here in our outline is a healthy church is marked by continual devotion to the Lord. Continual devotion to the Lord. Now, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, was central to all that was happening in this new church. If that didn't happen, there wouldn't be a church. There'd be nothing to celebrate. And the word here translated continually devoting. It it, it points out that, you know what, this is something that happens with consistency. It happens with purpose. It happens with resolve. It doesn't say occasionally. No, it says continually they devoted themselves to these things. One out of ten uses of the verb and, and one use of the noun in the New Testament, six are connected with prayer, two with the ministry of the word. So it's, there are certain things that we should be devoted to. Well, there's four things here. The first thing, devotion to the Lord, means devotion to teaching his word. It says in verse 42, they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? It means they studied. They studied. The thing they committed themselves to was the study of God's word. Now, when we say the word doctrine or teaching, you know, some people kind of, oh, doctrine, I don't want anything to do with doctrine. It just means teaching. That's what it means in the original language. They gave themselves to being instructed, and they gave themselves to teaching others. You know, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says it this way. Timmy, Timothy, excuse me, Timothy, I don't know why I said Timmy. That was a friend that I had back when I was a kid. <clears throat> Timothy, you have been taught by me. You teach faithful men, and they will teach others also. That's what the Bible calls us to. See, it's a cycle of teaching. It's not a come once and somebody dumps on you and then you leave and you come back the next week and you get dumped on again until you get nice and fat spiritually. <clears throat> I was looking at some videos on, online the other day of some old Christian artists that I used to like and Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and things. And, and she used to sing this song called Fat Little Baby. Great song. And it just talks about people who just come to church and just hang out and just get fat spiritually. And it's, it's just, it's, look it up. It's a wonder you'll be entertained. It's a fun song. I'd love to get somebody to sing it one time in church. That'd be great. It's a great song. See, that's the pattern for the New Testament church. The church is not, it was never intended to be a spectator organization. It just wasn't. It was never intended to be an entertainment center where you come and you you see a a show, you know, some spiritual circus on Sunday morning. That's not what the church is about. It was intended to be a reproductive teaching cycle where faithful men are taught and they turn and teach others as well. And so this first church had it right. I mean... He says it over and over again. You know, if you're going to teach, what do you have to do? You have to study. You have to study. 
2 Timothy 2.2 tells us to teach. But then in verse 15, he says, first of all, study to show yourself approved. So you can't teach if you don't study. There's a lot of people that try that. It doesn't work too well. Trust me, it's not too effective. The pattern for growth in the church is simply given in 1 Peter 2.2. And here's what it says. As babies desire milk, you desire the word that, that you may what? That you may grow by it. Growth comes from teaching, from studying. It's not some emotion-filled experience on Sunday morning that's going to do you any good. It's being taught. Paul said in Romans that you do not, don't be conformed to this world, but be what? Be transformed. How? He says, by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Colossians 3.10. Paul says, put on the new man that is renewed in knowledge. 1 Peter 1.13. Gird up your loins, the loins of your mind. See, we need to learn. It's not about being entertained on Sunday morning. You've got to have the right input. And doctrine basically is the basis of everything. I talk to pastors all the time. And they'll say, what are you preaching on? And I'll say, well, we're doing a little break now, but we're going through Romans. Wow, there's a lot of doctrine in that. Or they'll say, yeah, we went through Romans. I said, you did? Yeah. Yeah, we went through it. We we spent 10 weeks in Romans. I said, you went through the whole book? Oh, yeah. I'm like, wow. That's incredible. Must have been long sermons. Because there's a lot in that book. How, how could you ever skip over part of Romans? I, I just, I, that's just something that I can't conceive of. You know, Hosea says this, my people are destroyed for lack of what? Knowledge. You know, you look at the church today, beloved, what is happening to it? It's not doing too well in general. It's really not. It's capitulating to the world. Because you know what? Sometimes to learn doctrine, to be taught, it, 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 it takes time. It takes a mind. You can't come in here Sunday morning after having stayed up till 3.30 in the morning, groggy and tired, and go, oh, okay, what are we going to do today? No. That's not a way to come here and worship the Lord. You should come here with your mind smart, sharp, ready to go. Because you want to be taught the word of God. Doctrine is the heart of everything. And when you look through the New Testament over and over again in the, in the, the epistles that Paul writes, mainly the pastoral epistles, he says just that. In Titus, he says, speak the things that become sound doctrine. In, in chapter 1, verse 9 of Titus, he says, hold fast the faithful words as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and conf- uh, confute the, impo- the imposers. First uh, Timothy four six. Um, if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and good doctrine. In verse eleven of First Timothy four, he says, "These things command and teach." And he says, "Till I come, give attendance to the reading of exhortation and to doctrine." 
Verse 16, he says, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. So you see it over and over. And finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, preach the word. Don't get up here and tell some funky story about whatever. Preach the word. Sound doctrine. You have to have the proper content in a local body. If you don't, it's gonna, you're going to see it. You're going to see it fleshed out in the lives of the people. I think any shepherd who does not teach the truth to his sheep does not protect them. So you see, they had the, the right motivation here. You know, we don't need another place to be entertained. You know, we have so much entertainment. We have entertainment coming out our ears. And yet, when you talk a lot of times to, to people in the ministry, they well, you know, boy, you know, yeah, we, we, uh, you know, we only preach for 20 minutes because, you know, anything over 20 minutes, you know, the, the psychologists say that nobody can concentrate for over 20 minutes. So, you know, you can't teach for over 20 minutes because it's just going out, you know, it's going into the clouds. Nobody, I'm like, really? That's weird. I mean, don't buy into that stuff. It's just not true. If you have a desire to learn, then you're going to be willing to come and be taught. It's just that simple. And so the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to activate your own heart so that teaching is not just some heady doctrine. We're not just talking about memorizing a bunch of doctrine and putting it in your head somewhere, but it it fleshes its way out in your Christian living. I mean, can you imagine if you were a pastor and this happened? I mean, you all of a sudden, next week, say you showed up next week and we had 3,000 people here. I mean, I guess, praise the Lord. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that would, that would be uh, an incredible undertaking. I, I don't know what we would do. I really don't. I mean, in a way, it would be a blessing. In a way, it would be a nightmare. 3,000. We don't even have bathrooms for 3,000 people. I mean, I don't even know. Think about the basic things. I mean, would it be exciting? Definitely. And see, here's what was happening. These people were coming from all different locations, all different backgrounds. We know that because they all didn't speak the same language. Hence, God had to give them the miraculous gift of languages so they could communicate the wonders of God. Now, some of them may have had biblical background, but there were probably, a lot of them were probably ignorant about who the person and ministry of Jesus Christ was. Even though it was still fresh, they maybe heard of him, but they didn't necessarily maybe sit under the, the, the teaching of the apostles at this point. So they were kind of interested. And so the apostles had this massive job on their hands to get these people grounded in their new faith before they returned home. And they probably started with Moses and all the prophets and explained some things concerning Christ and the scriptures and the Old Testament and, and, and walked them right through it. See, uh, today we, we find a lot of evangelical churches even de-emphasizing doctrine. They de-emphasize teaching. I read a survey one time of this guy who basically made a list of 15 characteristics of growing churches. The top growing churches. And here's the top 15 characteristics. You know what was not mentioned? Biblical teaching. 
It wasn't mentioned. It wasn't even on the list. I mean, there was music, there was drama, there's all kinds of other things, you know, service projects. But biblical teaching, biblical preaching did not make the list. See, so you can grow a church by doing a lot of things. I guarantee you if this million-dollar bill was real, our church would be full next week. (laughs) Do you hear what they're doing at that church? (laughs) They're giving away $100 bills or whatever. There's a lot of ways to grow a church. But they're not all the Lord's way. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul kind of gives this strong admonition to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. I mean, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, whoa, what's he going to say? Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Then he says what? Preach the word. Preach the word. And he goes on to warn Timothy. I'm sure you know 2 Timothy 4. He goes on to warn them that you know what? There's going to come a time, Timothy, where people won't put up with it. People will not endure sound doctrine. But they will kind of be drawn to teachers who tell them what they want to hear. So the first thing, a church, the model church, was committed, devoted to teaching the word. They were devoted to sound doctrine. Secondly, devotion to the Lord means devotion to corporate worship. It means devotion to corporate worship. The preaching of God's word should result in worship. This is part of worship. This should bring us together as the body of Christ. This should cause our hearts to well up with worship for the Lord. And you see here, in addition to the apostles' teaching, there was several aspects of worship. The first one being there, they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. They had a meal together. I mean, you hear people sometimes say, well, you know, we, we don't want to celebrate communion too often because then it comes mundane. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, hey, do this as often as you should, as often as you can until I come back. I mean, there are a lot of things that we probably do that become routines. Maybe even reading your Bible, doing your devotions, it becomes a routine. That's not a bad thing, necessarily. The solution is not to decrease the frequency, but to rather to ask God to shake out of us the spiritual dullness that makes it so routine. When we come to this table, we have to be reminded that this should remind us of the greatest truth in the world, that the Son of God who loved us, loved me, loved you, he gave himself for you, he gave himself for me, so that we could be forgiven, that we could be reconciled to God. It should make us examine our lives so that we confess any sin in our hearts. So they had the Lord's supper they also had prayer it says literally the text there says they were continually devoting themselves to the prayers it refers to set times of corporate prayer whenever wherever the church meets whether it's a large meeting or house to house we ought to have some form of prayer involved that's just bottom line 
And yet, you know, in any church, the prayer meeting is the least attended meeting of the, of the church. It really is. I don't care how big the church is. And, and we forget that God requires us to devote ourselves to these things. Because, beloved, this doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen due to our own ingenuity or our own abilities. It, it only happens when God interjects himself into it. Because we are so dependent on God that if, if we try anything without him, it's doomed to failure. I really believe that. And so prayer should be something that's on our hearts. I know our ladies meet once a month for prayer, I think on Thursday night. And we also have a prayer meeting every Sunday morning right across the way in one of the classrooms. They pray specifically for the service. Pray on Wednesday night. You know, I'm sure that some of you gather together for prayer at times. Well, the third thing here is praise and joy. It says they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity in heart. Okay, they had a gladness in their heart. Their lives were marked by joy because of what the Lord has done for them on the cross. That praising God there in verse 47 is a, is a present participle. And it's pointing to this ongoing kind of um, common expression of praise to God. I mean, it's not just in the worship times. It's all the time. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes life can kind of beat you up. Life can kind of grab you and shake you, and boy, you're just going, whoa, what's going on? You, you don't know which ends up. But you know what? Even in those hard times, I can't really say that I don't have that joy of the Lord in my heart. I mean, I may be going through a hard time, whatever it might be, but you know what? God somehow, that, that joy is still there. I still know that God's in control. I'm not. And what's happening to me is totally happening under the sovereign hand of God. And I can take joy in that. And I think the only way to really develop that kind of joy, that constant focus, is to deliberately focus your mind on God. Colossians 3.1 says, If you then, being raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It keeps things in perspective. Psalm 57.7 says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing, praises. When did David write that? He wrote that when he was hiding in a cave, being afraid that this mad King Saul was going to come and murder him. See, even in the caves of life, beloved, God's people must resolve to be people which praise him and have joy in their hearts and in their lives. That's such an important thing because that gives a picture of Christ in your life. So this continual devotion to the Lord his teaching, and also just worshiping him, this, this idea of praise and joy. Well, the second thing here, a healthy church is marked by continual devotion to the Lord's people. It says they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. Um, we can't be devoted to the head, who is Christ, and at the same time cut ourselves off from his body. It doesn't work that way. I mean, that's his church. I, I heard one sermon this past week, and the pastor gave this illustration. I'm just going to say it. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, can you imagine a young man saying this to his date? I like your face, but boy, your body's really gross. <laughs> that wouldn't go over too well, would it, ladies? 
I mean, that would be his last date with her. You can't disconnect the head from the body. Okay? Well, you take that and you apply that to Christ. You know, I hear a lot of people that say, oh, you know, I heard uh, J. Vernon McGee talking about this this morning, early in the morning. He was talking in a sermon. He said, oh, yeah, a lot of people in our church, they say they go to the invisible church. (laughs) They don't want to come to the the visible church because it's filled with problems and people and, boy, it just gets kind of prickly and they don't like that. So they just stay home and they go to the invisible church. They're Christians. Oh, they're committed to Christ, but they don't want to be part of the church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's ridiculous. You can't connect, disconnect Christ from his body. Say, well, I want Jesus, but ah, the church is off limits. I don't want to go there. Is the church perfect? No, no church is perfect. If you find a perfect church, someone said, don't join it because you'll mess it up. That's so true. It's just true. And so even though the body of Christ is not nearly as as lovely as Christ himself, (laughs) the Bible commands us, beloved, in Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together with other believers. And there are many verses in the Bible that exhort us to bear with one another, forgiving one another, Why do you think they're there? Because we need to be forgiven at times. We often offend someone else or often we get offended. That Greek word basically means to share in common, koinonia, to share in common. And to do that, first of all, you have to be truly saved. If you're going to have fellowship with the church of Christ, you have to, first of all, be saved. To be saved means to be that you've been delivered from God's wrath and his judgment Because you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for your sins. And as soon as a person is saved, as soon as a person puts their their trust, moves their trust from themselves to Christ for their salvation. They forget trusting in their good works and all their good deeds, but they trust solely in Christ. That person is saved. And as soon as he is saved, he shares Christ in common with all others who are saved. Have you ever gone on vacation and gone to church? Maybe it's not the same kind of church. Maybe it's a different denomination. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the same style of worship. But you walk in the building and, boy, you just feel a connection with people. Why? Because they're saved. They're part of the same body. It just maybe looks a little different or it sounds a little different. And so salvation by grace through faith in Christ is the basis of all true fellowship. And so this first church was a fellowshipping church because it was a saved church. I like to say it this way, all the professors of Christ were actually possessors of Christ. See, today we have too, way too many churches that are filled with people who are professing Christ, but they don't have Christ. They think they have. They have religion. They have a bunch of other stuff. And it's, it's sad because I even hear sometimes people in, in different churches they'll say things like you know we we just got to get you know more more unsaved people here that's the sole goal of their church is to bring the unsaved into the church and i'm thinking wow i mean why would you make that a goal that doesn't that doesn't make sense to me and i know it comes out of a heart for evangelism and they're thinking well if they get them here then they can evangelize them but remember what i said evangelism is not our first priority 
Especially here on Sunday morning. Will you hear the gospel? Definitely. Do we have a, a problem with unbelievers being here? Not at all. But we're not going to kowtow to make them feel comfortable. We're not going to invite the world into the church and say, please, please like us. We'll do stuff for you. We'll do lots of stuff for you if you'll just like us. As a matter of fact, we won't even say, sir, we won't talk about sin because we know you don't like that. We won't talk about the blood of Christ because that's kind of offensive. We won't talk that say things like Jesus is the only way. Oh, that's how intolerant is that? No, we want to be a church that's, that's open to all faiths. All, just come, everybody, just let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. We just love everybody. That's not this church. This was truly a saved church. They had to be saved because they had fellowship together. Now, I'm not saying we don't want you to invite maybe a, a friend that's not a believer. Hey, come hear a message or come to a Bible. That's great. Maybe they'll expose to that. But that's not the, the primary purpose of us meeting together on Sunday mornings. It's so that we can fellowship. I mean, John MacArthur says, when you invite the world into your church, you're basically trying to do ministry with Satan. You're trying to say, hey, you know what? God, let's take your church and then we'll invite Satan in and we'll try to do ministry now. I mean, how is that going to work? It's not. There's one church in Southern California when they were going through their massive problems. And all these financial problems and issues. Let's just say they, they were in a church where you didn't want to throw rocks. There's a lot of glass involved. And when they had a change of leadership, new worship team came in and said, you know what, we need to kind of rethink what's going on in this church. I think they had a four or five hundred member choir. So the new worship person came in and said, you know what, I, I need you folks to sign this. Because we've heard some things that are not good. Simple statement that said that I will not support or participate in homosexual behavior of any kind. They lost three quarters of their choir because people refused to sign something like that. And they're up there leading the congregation in worship every week. See, this is what's happening to our churches today. They're kowtowing. They're, they're lowering the standards just so they can have more people involved. That's like inviting Satan to come and to, to make plans with you as far as ministry. That's not what the Bible says this church did. That's not what we want to be about. You have to be saved. You have to meet together. You have to be willing to, to come together. I mean, that's part of fellowship. You can't have fellowship with somebody if you're not meeting together. And I'm not going to dial down on this and make you feel guilty or whatever, but I'm just telling you. I mean, I think that we live in a society today where we've kind of negated the church gatherings to Sunday morning. So if you go once a week on Sunday morning, you know, you've punched your card, you've done your duty, you don't have to do anything else. You know, you've kind of dealt with the guilt. 
You have to be willing to come out and make time to meet together. Whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a midweek group, whether it's whatever, there's a purpose for it. And it's not, the purpose isn't just to have a bunch of people there. You know, we actually have a good time. We, we fellowship, we learn about each other, we pray for each other. Thirdly, to have fellowship, you have to share together in the things of God. Christians get together, they spend a whole lot of time talking about a lot of different things. We need to make sure that we're focusing on the right things. At some point, the conversation has to move beyond who's going to win the Super Bowl or how the Warriors are doing or you know, whatever, your, whatever the talk of the town is. At some point, they have to move on to maybe some deeper things, some spiritual things. I mean, these, these early Christians, it says that they were taking their meals together. They were breaking bread. I mean, that's a good way to share time together, isn't it? One reason why we do that every week after somebody is over there cooking right now, making us lunch, basically. Sharing the things of God. And then the last thing here, to, to the, have fellowship, you must be willing to share in material things. Now, this isn't some verse that's talking about communism and everybody coming together and you selling everything and putting it all in one. That's not what he's talking about. I mean, the Bible obviously clearly recognizes our rights to personal property, and it obviously recognizes our right and for the need of families to be distinct. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. But see, the, the, the situation here in Jerusalem was a little unique. Thousands of people were coming from other towns for this, this Feast of Pentecost on this day. And many of these people were saved after Peter's message. And they wanted to kind of hang around here in Jerusalem and, and learn a little bit more about their new found faith. And so what did they do? This church had to come together and say, well, what are we going to do with all these people? Well, I can take a couple. Oh, I can take a couple. I got a tent out back. They can sleep out there. Yeah, we will throw in some food, help them out. Whatever it might be. To meet these needs, the church opened their homes and they opened their pocketbooks to the needy. Some even sold land. They donated the proceeds. Wasn't required. I mean, and before you say, well, this, you know, this doesn't apply today, does it? <laughs> You're getting a little nervous. Um, See, we need to be reminded what Scripture says. It exhorts us to be generous. It exhorts us to be ready to share with those in need, 1 Timothy 6.18. We're told not to share with someone who's lazy. We're told not to share with someone who's irresponsible or refuses to work. The idea is that you're sharing with people, but you still have to use discernment. But if a brother or sister is in need of the basics of life, food, Shelter, clothing, maybe. Not talking about cable TV or six-pack of beer or whatever. Yeah, that's not that they're talking about. It's talking about the basics. See, if we have the world's goods and we see our brother or sister in need and we close up our heart against him, 1 John 3.17 says, well, we should really question whether we have the love of God abiding in us. And the last thing here, a healthy church is marked by continual devotion to God's work in the world. That's why we have missionaries that we support. That's why, you know, we, we 
allow for, for things like mission trips and things like that so you can get a first-hand look at what's going on in different areas of the world. Notice it does not say that the church was devoting itself to evangelism. It doesn't say that. It says a continual devotion to God's work in the world. You know, and, and I think that we need to be kind of reminded about that. Because it's very easy to just kind of devote ourselves to evangelism and then, you know, everything else goes by the wayside. There was a pastor here a year ago, years ago in Redwood City, no longer here. I said, boy, I said, you, you really, I mean, you give that kind of message every week? It just seems very, 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 you know, evangelistically oriented. And he goes, yeah, he goes, you know the way I look at it, Steve? He goes, we'll save them, and then we'll send them over to you, and you can teach them. I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a bad deal, actually, but I don't think that's biblical. (laughs) See, they were so focused on evangelism that they missed what the true calling of the church was. Evangelism is, is, is primarily God's work. We need to remind ourselves of that. He does it through us, but it's his work. I don't know about you, but that takes the... That takes the burden off. When I'm out there sharing Christ, I don't feel like I have to close the, close the deal, get him to sign on the dotted line. Just say it. Just say, Jesus is Lord, so I can get on to somebody else, will you? I mean, there, uh, you laugh. There's some people like that. And, and I'm just saying, that's not evangelism. There are special times when God's sovereign, sovereignty is working in a special way. And sometimes hundreds and thousands get saved in a very short period of time. And there are other times in God's sovereignty, there are people that minister for years and they don't ever see a convert, ever. That's not up to them. It's up to God. Well, as we come to our communion table today, I pray that these things that we talked about will be fresh in your heart, in your mind. And uh, as we prepare our heart for our communion, even now, we want to ask that, uh, just ask that you would join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of the New Testament church. And Lord, we pray that as we partake together here in communion, that you would uh, uh, allow our hearts to rally around that common cause, that we do have fellowship with one another if we're in Christ. If someone here is not a believer, I just pray that they would pass the, the, the elements on. It doesn't really mean anything to them. But it's never too late. It's, it's now's the time of salvation, the Bible says. So even now you can cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. He'll, he will answer that prayer. And so, Father, we ask that you would just do that work here this morning. Prepare our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.